start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Each week, the Event Horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. I am your host, Gene Turnbow, founder and station manager for Krypton Radio, and with me is Susan Fox, the station's executive producer. Hello! Tonight, we are pleased and delighted to have with us our special guest, American science fiction novelist and screenwriter, David Gerald. He is an author of numerous novels and short stories, as well as the original Star Trek series, the Star Trek animated series, and Star Trek The Next Generation. And one of my personal favorites, by the way, is The Man Who Folded Himself uh, from 1973. And your latest project, welcome to the show, David. Thank you. It's it's great to have you with us. So your latest project involves uh, three of your books, the Star Wolf series, and bringing them to the screen to television. For the people who don't know, tell us what the Star Wolf book series are and, and what your plans are. Uh, well, it, it's very simple. I, I wanted to do, and this dates back a long time. It's it, in fact what I have said elsewhere is the reason I write is there are stories I want to read, and nobody else is writing them, so I have to write them myself. And the, the Star Wolf is one of those uh, that I want to see a realistic starship uh, episode or adventure or television series. Uh, where we recognize that the laws of physics can't be argued with, or, or, well, you know, you might negotiate a little bit, but that the laws of physics are immutable. And um, I uh, started thinking about, you know, you look at certain shows, and you realize they're breaking the laws of physics, or what they're doing isn't scientifically accurate, or even accurate to the way people are. Uh, Gene Roddenberry used to say, and I think he forgot it at some point, but he was right to say it. If I wouldn't believe it on the bridge of the battleship Missouri, I'm not going to believe it on the bridge of the starship Enterprise. And I took that to heart. I think that's how you should do a science fiction show, that your science has this this quality of believability. doesn't mean you're not going to have action. doesn't mean you're not going to have an adventure. It means that you have a stricter set of rules to follow. Uh, a good example of a, of a story that would have been science fiction if it weren't true is Apollo 13, which is a terrific movie. 
It's about guys using science to solve the problem of survival and getting home safe. Um, that was such to, a good movie, too. Yes, because, it was. You know, you were on, we were on our, at the edge of our seats, even though we knew how it ended. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, 2001 is a great science fiction picture because almost all of the science is <clears throat> accurate. Um, there's one or two little errors that I don't think they even noticed when they did it, but they forgot and had gravity in one of the rooms that should have been weightless on the discovery. Um, but other than that, uh, it is it remains one of the most accurate science fiction films ever made because it shows you how space travel is going to work in a certain age. So what I wanted to do was take the classic science fiction adventure story, uh, Space War, and take it forward with what we know scientifically about faster than light travel, what we know about how to build a spaceship, what we know about what you have to do to create a self-sustaining environment for your uh, uh, people aboard the ship and postulate a galactic war, an, inter, uh, a, an interstellar war that is fought not like aircraft carriers, not like uh, uh, dogfights, supersonic dogfights, but the way it would actually be fought, which would be closer to submarines lurking in the darkness trying to ping each other and not get pinged in return and then firing torpedoes and hoping they hit their target only doing this with millions of miles of distance between them. And as we started working this out, um, you know, because you talk to other people and say, how do I solve this problem, whatever, and you, you, know, you bounce ideas back and forth, it, the, the novels came into being, and somewhere along the line we started developing the television series from it. Uh, and in developing the series, the characters really came to life, and we started asking ourselves, well, you know, who would be aboard this spaceship? And one of the things I realized is too often science fiction shows are about the, the biggest ship or the best ship or the smartest people, and they're all the very best. Too often, too often these shows are, are uh, you know, it's the biggest and the best. What I realized is, and I was watching... A, a movie I really love, uh, Henry Fonda and and uh, Jimmy Cagney and uh, uh, Jack Lemmon in a film called Mr. Roberts. Mm -hmm. And World War Two is one of my kind of uh, major interests, and there and some of my favorite movies are Run Silent, Run Deep, mm -hmm. The Enemy Below, mm -hmm. and Das Boot, uh, all submarine movies. And you start thinking, here's an enclosed environment, and and these people have to get along with each other and solve problems like they're being depth charged or they're running out of food or whatever, um, or they have to avoid detection. And you realize that it, it, real heroism, ordinary guys who've been drafted, um, they're not the best and the brightest. They're just ordinary people who have to rise to extraordinary levels of heroism. And I started thinking... To me, that's the real adventure in a story, is seeing that ordinary people are heroes. And so our starship doesn't have a name. She hasn't earned a name. We have a couple of smart people in command positions, but most of the crew are, you know, they've been drafted, they've enlisted, they're, you know, they're 
an ordinary crew. They've been well trained, they know their jobs, but we don't have, we haven't selected or cherry-picked heroes. So there's real doubt whether they're going to survive. And in fact, we have a kind of a, a in the story arc, we know which characters are probably not going to survive the first four episodes or the first season. Um, we're going to, uh, uh, you'll watch, when we get the series going, you'll watch this uh, show. You are never going to know who's going to survive from one episode to the next. I was surprised at a few people who didn't survive in the uh, first, well, the first three stories of the books. I'm not, no spoilers, but no nobody spoilers. is safe. Is basically. Nobody is safe in a battle. Nobody's safe in a battle. Remember the opening of uh, Saving Private Ryan, and you look at guys and you think, oh, he's going to be one of the heroes when he survives. <laughs> Bullet goes right through his head. Anybody else just has to keep going on to get off the beach. Yep. That's, yeah. You don't know who's going to survive, who's going to die. And I think that'll be part of the tension of the show, is that it will be much more realistic and gritty than, oh, here's our regular cast and nothing's ever bad ever going to happen to them. And at the end of the episode, they'll be all better. Well, real life doesn't work that way. So, so one of the realistic sciences is psychology as well as every all the physical sciences. Uh, psychology, uh, I hate to, to, to get into psychobabble because... We've oh, but I mean, they're real people. They're not all yeah. happy, shiny, you know, examples of, yeah. you know, yeah. space marine, you know. They, we are culture. not doing the, the, the genre cliches of the, the space marine. We do have some a story involving some commandos, but it's not the story you think you're going to see when you see our commandos. Very good. Oh, we're not, they're not going to be gung-ho guys on a bug hunt. Uh, we do have uh, some... Uh, confrontations with our enemies. They're called Morthans. Um, but it's not going to be your standard Star Trek, we're going to outsmart you with, you know, this or that, or we're going to make friends with you. Um, there are some serious differences of opinion that are not going to go away in 45 minutes of storytelling. That's right. So, yeah. So much of your, uh, so much of your work, though, is so character-driven. I mean, I, I, I read the first of the uh, Star Wolf uh, series, and I noted how much... I mean, the the ship was incredibly detailed, but so were the people. And uh, the same love and care and attention were given to the characters in the development of those characters as you gave to the ship itself. And I was... Uh, it's the whole gestalt works as a single machine. You know, the ship and its crew... Well, yeah, there is a uh, thank you. There is a uh, a relationship between somebody and the tools he uses. There's this profound relationship that people have, uh, and it's it's the ten thousand hour of muscle memory or the million words for a writer that you build up a discipline where the machine becomes an extension of yourself, and that's really what any kind of training is about. Is about building that muscle memory so that you don't have to stop and think you've got it it's it's an extension of yourself so that's i wanted my crew to feel really at home in the starship so what that meant is i had to uh, i spent hours drawing you know well what's the most logical way to design a starship based on if you have this technology 
for moving it forward. Uh, what's your best, you know, what's the most efficient design? And then the other thing was that during World War II, uh, I think it was Kaiser Aluminum was building Liberty ships, and Ford and a couple other companies were building Liberty ships. Every 11 days, another ship would come off the line. And once they even demonstrated, they could put one together in four days. And I think they did one in one day once. Well, that had and to be a piece of crap, though. <laughs> Really? No, well, yeah, they were all just, they were stamped out like Fords, you know, there's <laughs> coming off this assembly line. But they they were, uh, uh, you know, they leaked, they, they rattled, they were noisy, um, They but they were watertight enough to float and they could deliver cargo and they could carry guns. And uh, when Hitler heard that we were turning out Liberty ships at the rate of one every 11 days, he said, we've lost the war because... The Germans couldn't sink ships faster than we could build them. And we were taking a terrible toll from the U-boat convoy attacks. So uh, they were really doing a lot of damage. So the Liberty ships pretty much helped win the war in the Atlantic. And that occurred to me is that in a wartime situation where we need to build starships in a hurry, our guys are going to be getting tin cans that barely hold air and move. And anything, and they're constantly patching them up so they can keep going. And that's the LS-1187. We see it in the first episode as a new starship, but by the 10th episode, it's going to be so battered and scorched. Uh, it's going to, you know, it'll have a character of its own. But uh, I, I want to come back to this other thing. I want to focus on the human beings inside the ship. That's the most interesting thing, how they deal with keeping the ship running and having the characters of these, you know, having the actors have good characters to play, having the characters have real problems to solve, that's what brings it to life. You are not asking for a lot of money uh, as, as these things go. This is, it's, what is it, 600 and... 650. 650,000? That sounds like a lot of money until you realize what, what you want to buy with it. This isn't going up anybody's nose. Every penny is going to be seen on screen. Or has to. Or has, has to. to. Well, yeah. Let me point something out. On on so, let's say a typical show, your executive producer could be taking home twenty five thousand dollars a week. That's a hundred thousand a month. Um, at the end of ten months, he's taken a million dollars out of the budget. If you add your other producers, they're staff writers, but they get the title of producer, and they're each taking home between ten or fifteen thousand a week. Uh, and and all of a sudden, you've got an enormous cost that isn't ending up on the screen. Your actors deserve to be well paid, but again, you know, you get an actor who's taking home twenty five thousand, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars per episode, and you pretty soon you can't afford to do the show. Whereas we, what we know is there's a lot of good people who'd love to work. And the actual production costs of building the sets and shooting everything, editing, sweetening the sound, props, costumes, um, and a lot of green screen work, uh, the actual budget is much less than what gets reported in the studio overhead. What we can do, and I don't want to go too deep into the financing, but there's a way to, instead of, of go, you know, the guilds have waivers, so there's lower wages on internet shows, but there's also a thing we can do of uh, shared ownership for the above-the-line people so that 
there we don't have to worry about residual schedules if they have shared ownership they're going to get a, a they're going to get a percentage of every dollar that comes in so i don't want to go into too much detail on that but we looked at how do we reinvent film production so as to take it out of the stratosphere and bring it back down so it's only a difficult challenge not an impossible one that's nuts i had no idea that uh, show producers made that much in a week I had no uh, clue. Yeah, Not, and to, I've been in the, to, and I've been in the business for since nineteen seventy nine. I used to type for a dues department of a major guild. Yeah, he's not. He's oh not fluffing God. those those so uh, estimates. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, an episode of of your favorite science fiction TV series can cost two million dollars. But the actual production of it could be one fourth of that amount of money because of the overhead. If we could find ways to eliminate as much overhead and just really boil it down to the people who are rolling up their sleeves and doing the actual work. Um, Instead of this yeah. elephant riding a go-kart situation. Yeah, uh, let me give you an example. There's a guy named James Colley who does this show, Star Trek Phase 2, for the Internet. Mm-hmm. And they work very close to the bone. It's all donated time and donated uh, energy and donations of money too but he's demonstrated how inexpensively you can do a professional looking production um when you focus on putting all the money in front of the camera Mm -hmm. so there's lessons to be learned um from a lot of the the independent internet producers well the star trek phase two people in particular are devoted to what they're Mm -hmm. doing they believe well, they they demonstrated their proof of concept that one, there's an audience, and two, it can be done. So, mm-hmm. uh, if it weren't for phase two, I don't think I would be quite so enthusiastic about our chances here. They really have lit the way. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself uh, checking the the latest uh, science news to see what else can go into it to try and stay ahead of the so that science fiction stays science fiction and, and <laughs> you know science passed my ability to keep up a long time ago but i read the science articles and the science news almost every single day and and i make notes on the ones that are going to affect whatever i'm working on or intend to work on and there are things that uh, we're already looking at well we star wolf has to do this take a you know take note of this technology we have to do this this way uh so the armor that our commandos would wear um would, doesn't have to be what we previously thought the food the the medical the the healing the repairs um the design and construction of the starship everything is affected by every advance in technology and and well and uh, medicine and so on so i'm <laughs> i'm excited by it. there will come a point where we will say, okay, we can't wait for the next <laughs> for the next breakthrough. We're going to do it this way. One of the interesting things about um, Star Trek was its ability to uh, predict technology. Well, I don't it, know if it was predicting. Except but it wasn't actually predicting. It was more like being the saw, template. For, yeah, I was about to say, people saw communicators and, ooh, I want that. And the kids who watched uh, communicators on TV invented them and we've got cell phones now. 
And the so, the pads are. I think that's that's a tail wagging the dog. There. Yeah, the the data pads they used on the show, iPads, and now we've got. Uh, the, and this is interesting, and I wanted to bring this up because uh, we're talking about a, a, a sort of a, a rapidly built starship. Uh, the Alcubierre Drive, my, uh, Miguel Alcubierre, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, proposed a uh, he's best known for his proposal on uh, how to create a warp drive mm-hmm. you know the yeah. mathematics the mathematics for that actually work out and he does it by uh, his according his method you don't push the ship what you do is you make a warp bubble around the ship and you push that so that you don't well, violate I, I wrote something space. like that in 1972 in yesterday's children yep, that you sure did we have this uh, pinpoint black hole, and we turn it inside out, and that gives us a uh, a warp bubble. And we, by pushing on the warp bubble this way or that way, we move it through space at faster than light speeds. Um, and the funny thing is, you know, at first they said, "Oh, well, yes, in theory this will work, uh, but it would require more output than uh, than you could get from uh, you. You could burn the entire output of the sun in ten minutes." <laughs> trying to get it to warp. Uh, well, that's only for out, well, but that's you, only for one point Release three point will probably only need to use the moon. Well, <laughs> as it turns out, uh, if you take your uh, if you take your uh, field coil and you tilt it in an angle, I mean, you, yeah. you, the, uh, you can reduce the energy consumption by something like ninety eight percent. Yeah, and uh, instead of requiring an entire star to fuel it. Uh, you need about the same amount of energy that you'd get from an antimatter reaction from about 500 kilos. So that's kind of yeah. doable. That's yeah, that's starting to get doable. And the pictures are, you know, imagine a pencil with a hoop around it. And I, we've seen a lot of of. But you see, that's actually very movie. funny because we have these. We do it with these three spars, but a ship that doesn't have the same efficiency would have to have the hoop around it. And we actually have notes about ships with hoops around them. So uh, we just... So... um, Anybody else uh, finding this a little bit eerie? uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that... That that science fiction seems to be... uh, That the physics that we discover... Seems to fall in line with what uh, uh, predictive fiction predicts. Oh, not all predicts. Of it. Well, but predictive it's... fiction has made some serious uh, well, yeah. boo-boos. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, like all it... those one face to the sun Mercury stories had to be trashed, and uh, there, there was a lot of golden age there's, stuff. That but fly. you know, when you play with the laws of physics, uh, you know, there's all kinds of different things. You start thinking of well, what's going to look good? What feels right? And sometimes, you know, it's it's like throwing stuff at the wall. Sometimes it's, some of it sticks. I uh, uh, wrote in When Harley Was One uh, that computer chips would, would not just have yes or no, they would have a whole bunch of stages in between. Maybe yes, maybe, maybe no, then no. You know, it's like, and they said, no, somebody, a computer scientist said, you know, you don't need to do that. You can do that with binary chips. Oh, okay. So I changed that. Then the next thing I found out um, is that computing. it will not Fuzzy just qua- not just quantum computing, but they are people are, are playing with chips that have multiple states. So oh, yeah, qubits. 
Yeah, that's yeah. that's uh, uh, quantum state computing. I just no longer try to explain the science in my books. I just say <laughs> this is this is what we're using, and somebody else can explain it. It hasn't uh, been invented yet, you know. Come on, yeah. let's, let's let's have some. Uh, I think readers are willing to in the in the glory days, the golden age of science fiction. There was an educational purpose. You did have to uh, explain things a lot, but I don't think you have to anymore. Tell uh, the Star Trek people, if I have to deliver another techno babble line, boy, yeah. do I sympathize with those with the real uh, movie and TV actors. <laughs> Trying to deliver those lines is murder, and it means nothing. <laughs> yeah, actually, I I've discovered in directing how much of the the techno babble can be cut, but you do need to have an explanation of what you're doing. So yeah, so it's it's. Um, but yeah, the it's it go, this goes back to what Dorothy Fontana says, and she's aboard. She will be one of our major. Oh, oh that doesn't oh. surprise me, but I'm pleased. Well, I wouldn't do the Star Wolf without Dorothy, Heck. and um, uh, uh, um, she uh, she is she's just so good. I forgot whatever where I was going with that. Uh, Science uh, explanations. Technology. Oh yeah, yeah. She says show, don't tell, which any good writer knows that. Boy, but Dorothy, that was my first yeah. class in the you know, yeah. shoot the sheriff in the first reel or the captain, as the case may be. Yeah. So and and we don't have we don't have a fifteen year old super genius on the show either. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Although if one does come aboard, he dies in the first ten minutes. <laughs> Like and nothing against me. Will Wheaton. Will's a great guy, yeah. but it, it's I always it felt his that fault the scripts it, yeah. crikeys. I felt that if you're gonna have a fifteen year old super genius on the show, you demonstrate that he's not emotionally mature. And it's about training him to learn maturity, not having him solve problems. Well you have you know, your Edsons are pretty young. <laughs> and you do yeah, have a you know, a, a you know, spacer 11th class or whatever getting sent on a snipe hunt and that's as young as he needs to be yeah well I, d I uh, had the chance to write a uh, manga story for um, uh, Star Trek pop or Tokyo pop Star oh, Trek cool. manga I didn't know and I they asked me to do one about uh, Will Cr uh, Wesley Crusher and I did one where he does get taken down a peg because he has to learn not to be such an arrogant little ass and uh, I thought it was a marvelous uh, story that would have made a terrific episode. And the joke is that, at the, that the entire adventure that they go through turns out to be a holodeck that, uh, exercise that he did not was not aware he was on the holodeck. <laughs> See, this is how you so use the holodeck pumped. for training. <laughs> use the holodeck as a training uh, facility, which was, I, that's what I said to them. I said, if we're going to have a holodeck, then use it to train people. Use it as a simulator, and so much. Uh, this is uh, this is some fun stuff. I mean, the the science fiction touching on real life and 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 back again. There's a new device called the uh, Oculus Rift, and uh, it's basically a. You've seen the the pictures from thirty years ago. The visual, the virtual reality helmets. The first yeah. one was so big and so heavy that you mm -hmm. didn't wear it so much as stand up inside it. Yeah. Because it weighed something like 100 pounds or something. Yeah. If you actually tried to wear it, it would snap your neck. And uh, 
uh, and now they've got the Oculus Rift, which is I think it's about a thousand bucks, and uh, it's you wear it on your face. You know, it's it's yeah. like a pair of uh, like an oversized sunglasses. Well, maybe bigger than that. Yoko Ono sunglasses. Yeah, it's <laughs> Yoko Ono sunglasses. It's, it's it's no longer like having a live dachshund strapped to your face, the way the way earlier ones were. And uh, there's another device which I have one in my hand here. It's the Leap Motion. Oh yeah, I'm waiting to get one of those. They look like they're going to really change the way things work for a lot of people. Yeah, and and uh, they, I I uh, I got in on the developers program, you know, because I'm a programmer, and uh, so I've played with the thing a little bit, and uh, essentially it's like uh, the Connect the for the Xbox, yeah. Except it's about uh, three inches long and about an inch wide. And about yeah. half an inch thick, and looks like it's about the same size as a cigarette lighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does the same job and as a as the Connect Motion Tracker does. Yeah, and you can track all ten fingers with it. Yeah, and essentially it turns any computer into a touchscreen machine. So all of a sudden it makes Windows Eight doable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not well. You, you just sort of gesticulate at it. You yeah. Know, well, can, that would can, be fine. You can program. You know, I can I can see churches doing this. You genuflect at the screen, and it does something interesting. <laughs> uh, but uh, you you combine these two devices, and you've got a pretty practical virtual reality system. Oh yeah. You know, it doesn't have haptic feedback, but we are so getting there. I mean, it's like the entire human race, uh, the the technology, the masters of the technology, anyway are trying like hell to build Star Trek as fast as we possibly can. <laughs> That's I what it seems Star like Wolf to me. the Star Wolf would be more interesting. Though. Well, the Star Wolf, uh, we want to be gritty. In fact, some Trek fans, jokingly, but uh, very accurately in their own way, said it's the anti-Trek in that we are not, I mean, we're optimistic and we're hopeful but we are up against impossible odds, and we don't win at the end of every every episode. We don't win at the end of some episodes. We our survival isn't guaranteed. Um, so it's it's we're we're trying to root everything much much more solidly in what's really possible, so that you. I, if I had to point to anything as a model, I'd say look at Das Boot. Yeah. Uh, uh, that that is what I think it's really going to be like. Um, close, cramped quarters, claustrophobic, and dealing with and you know you can't get outside. You can't even surface and stick your head out the hatch, and and long long periods of time uh, between planets. So it's going to be an incredibly uh, intense. Uh, circumstance for the the men and women aboard Uh, well the challenges that no submarine had to deal with like zero gravity (laughs) well that's one of the cheats that's one of the cheats we're giving ourselves artificial gravity as long as we have that's the last thing that ever breaks in star trek i want i want to you know deal with a contractor who makes their artificial gravity they're perfect (laughs) our second episode 
Uh, our yes. second episode, we are doing, I think, at least 20 minutes before we get gravity restored. Oh, that's I'd have to look at the cool. script. And, it, and, of course, in practical terms, the reason they didn't mess with the artificial gravity because, because they didn't was, have any zero g it, to it, yeah, it was no too, ex- CGI, too expensive to portray it and they couldn't hang people from wires and do anything real well there are tricks you can do oh, sure you don't have are. to show the whole person yeah you can you can do like they did on big bang theory where they uh you know the guy is sitting on a uh, a board that's being moved uh, up and down the other thing you can do is things with green screen uh, where you put the guy on a, a a green platform, and the green platform can move, and then you just take out the green, and mm-hmm. the background is there. So there's a lot of tricks you can do that weren't possible, in because now you're doing it on on video. Uh, you can do things that you could not do when all you had was film. So, so what is your uh, what's your story? Every writer has it has their own process for uh for developing a new novel what's yours um that's a very big question i know it's a big question but i'm just fascinated i've been reading your stuff for years and i want to know i've seen the stuff that comes out the end of the the uh the machine i want to know what goes into the hopper well it goes back to something james blish said to me uh i was in england and it was such a a privilege such a pleasure to meet James Blish, who I, you know, was probably one of the best critics of his era of science fiction. He, he was doing the analytical stuff uh, really intensely. He had genuine insight. And we were at a convention, and he looks at me and he says, who does it hurt? That's who your story is about. And when you have a character... And you have to ask, why is he hurting? What does he want? What's going to happen if he doesn't get it? Uh, so it, you ask, what's at stake? Where does he want to go? How does he get there? What's in his way? And you start fleshing that out, and you realize, you start thinking, how am I going to react to that? How would this character react to that? And pretty soon, and, and you have to get emotional. You have to get inside his head and get his or her emotions and then all of a sudden the character comes to life and runs away with the story and all you can do is hang on and type as fast as you can to keep up that's when you know you've done it right have you have you uh have you had stories where you've just you've had to finish it by, by, (laughs) by dint of craft alone well, that's a that's a thing that Harry Harrison and I give so much credit to all these great writers I learned from Harlan Ellison, Theodore Sturgeon, Robert A. Heinlein. People actually sat down with me and said, "Here's a lesson to learn." But Harry Harrison said, uh, <coughs> "Shit bricks. Sometimes you just sit and type words, and 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 just you know you're shitting a brick one after the other <laughs> until something just finally catches fire." And sometimes that's what you do. You sit and type knowing that it's all crap. But eventually you look at a sentence and say, I can fix that. Once you start doing that, the the juices start flowing. The trick that I use, the trick that I use is to close my eyes and remember the enthusiasm I had when I started the story in the first place. Why was I enthusiastic about this story? What... 
what was the feeling, what was the mood, what was I trying to create? And that gets me back into the flavor of the story. So a lot of the stuff that you've written uh, classifies, I think, as hard science fiction. Uh, uh, thank you, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to think of myself as a hard science fiction writer. Um, I notice that I'm not easy to classify. They don't call me a fantasy writer or hard science writer or a this or a that because I'm all over the map. You know, how do you, how do you reconcile mm -hmm. jumping off the planet with... Um, uh, let's say uh, Death Beast. How do you reconcile The Martian Child with Thirteen O'Clock? How do you, you know, it, it's like they're coming from different writers because they're coming from different places. That gives you a flexibility and and a, a scope or, that that most writers haven't got. And uh, I was, it just surprises me that that kind of that Sorry. kind of. Uh, I'm sorry, I've spilled my cranberry juice. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not blood, really. Yeah, let and me if write was, down the time, time stamp spilled cranberry juice. What I'm doing is I'm writing down my so time busted. codes. Time codes when we have to fix a boo-boo or a, or a I got nothing moment. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is uh, this is one of the reasons we don't do live radio. And you were on your way to asking a really interesting question too. Oh. You know. <laughs> uh, okay, let me let me start that one over. Uh, you are a lot of writers. You 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 open the book and you have a pretty fair idea of what to expect. You open a Frederick Pohl book and you know that it's going to be solidly based in astronomy uh, or, or hard sciences or hard physics and uh, that science is going to be a big part of the puzzle. That the and, and it's going to be deliciously cynical, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, and it will be. Uh, but you have a pretty good idea that every time you open a Frederick Pohl book, that's what you're going to find. Uh-huh. And your books... We're never quite sure. Yeah, your books, we're never quite sure what you're, we're going to get. Because every time, every, it seems like every three or four years, you decide, okay, I'm done with this angle of approach. Let me swing this around 70 degrees and start writing books from a new angle or a new point of view. Thank you. And that's, that's a compliment. Yes, it is. Uh, and... and uh, it goes back to, uh, there's two sources for that. One is, um, I'll give you the easy one first, something that the Beatles did was they made up their mind never to, to write the same song twice. And the Beatles were, uh, uh, every song, particularly if you were growing up with them, and you know, you'd be listening to the radio and, and you'd be hearing this song over and over, and you'd go, gee, who is that? And then they'd say, that's the Beatles. Well, you couldn't tell because every time out they were doing something different you know uh, uh come together was nothing like all you need is love it's like two different bands so, so yeah so they were always reinventing themselves now I, when i was in school and i was an art major and one of the art classes i took every week on monday we would examine the style of a specific artist Ruault or Henry Moore or uh, Swarat or uh, whoever, and then 
the rest of the week we would try and paint something in that artist's style so that we were trying on different styles the entire semester and it ultimately it gave us a sense of um, perspective on the nature of style and, and voice and vision. So when I started really getting a sense of what I was doing as a writer, uh, I started thinking, okay, uh, I like the effect Sturgeon created. I'm going to put myself in a Sturgeon mood. Now, you can't write in Sturgeon style, but you can put yourself in a Sturgeon mood. Uh, and another time I put myself in a Samuel R. Delaney mood. And here's a Jack Vance mood. And so, and of course, Heinlein. If you read mm -hmm. War Against the Tour, there's no question that's Heinlein. Um, I promised I would ask, and you can slap me down if you want. Are we ever going to see done. the last tour book? Yes, when it's done. Book five is, I've got about 250,000 words written. I need another 30,000 to finish it. So, um, Boy, the George so, R.R. Martin fans bitch and whine about only only five years between books. Yeah, well, you probably pat them on the head, or the tour fans pat them on the head and say, "Aren't you cute?" Yes. I <laughs> know. <laughs> I I just what I say is, if you're frustrated and impatient, imagine how I feel, and leave it at that. So, um, yeah. but okay. uh, so I've, I've I've delivered my promise. We've done that. No yeah, you've we've done that. Okay, <laughs> uh, but the thing is, is that. Uh, coming back to my approach to writing is what can I do that I've never done before and it, it doesn't matter if I succeed or fail I'm going to learn something from that opportunity and that's really the the, the job is uh, what can I learn that'll make me a better storyteller and uh, so I was really uh, pleased with the way uh, 13 o'clock turned out uh, for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. I was thrilled with uh, uh, that. Helped me write another one later on called "In the Quake Zone." So, or maybe it was reversed. I forget which came first. So, um, but yeah, I, I really think that uh, uh, one of the reasons why I feel comfortable with my craft. I think I'm finally to the point where I can say, okay, I, I might be a pretty good writer someday. But I think the reason for that is because I keep challenging myself and I keep trying to learn new things. Uh, I think if I ever stop learning, then I might as well, you know, just throw some dirt over me because I'll be done. Um, the job, I think the job of the writer is to continue to challenge himself because otherwise he can't challenge his uh, readers. The and, and the same with television. If you're not challenging the audience to, to think and to get involved with the characters in the story, well, what are you doing? You're writing big watch is what you're doing. Yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, I forget who said it. Uh, maybe it was Bradbury. Your job is to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. Something like that. I love that quote. I love that quote. Yeah, Bradbury has said a lot of good things about writing. So one of the disturbing things about Star Wolf, she said, trying to steer it back to uh, Thank the current you. work, um, is the Morthens. Where did they come from? They're not the Klingons by any means. Oh, no, they eat Klingons. They've got a very real... For one thing, there's no aliens in this, are there? <laughs> uh, there may be. We just haven't met them yet. But every every very unusual person we've seen is, is an adapted human of some I think kind that's, or another. I think that's more likely in the future that we are going to be uh, redesigning human beings before we uh, meet any aliens, and yeah. that we may be the most alien species we'll ever meet. 
I think uh, the the mystical first ones that that we hope will be out there, we're it. We're them. That's that we could very well be. Um, but uh, the, you've got the Quillas, the Martians, of whom we we haven't seen much, and the Morthans, who are very scary and going to well, be very hard to cast. Well, oh yeah, uh, the Morthans actually. Uh, again, it, it, people have pointed out this is a metaphor for World War II uh, in some degrees. And the Morthans, if you go and you look at the philosophy of the Third Reich, they were try they convinced that the German people they that they were a master race and deserved to rule the world. And it was a period of great insanity, uh, not just in Germany, but the rest of the world was dealing with some very bizarre philosophies that weren't going to work. Fascism, communism, uh, eugenics, all kinds of things that sounded scientifically plausible, but when you took a deeper look at them, were just justifications for acting like a jerk. Um, so I looked at uh, uh, if we augment human beings a lot, uh, cyborgs and all kinds of other uh, biological and, and cybernetic augmentations, what could we get? Well, we would get super warriors. And your super warriors would believe themselves more, uh, better, stronger. They would believe themselves to be a master race. And that if they got out of control and believe that as a master race, they didn't have to put up with ordinary human beings, we'd have a problem on our hands. Well, and it's exacerbated by the, uh, in, in the Star Wolf universe, it's exacerbated by uh, the fact that there, there was this great human diaspora. Yeah. And, and the pressures of having to get along with fellow humans uh, yeah. are essentially removed. So they yeah. had a thousand years which it's in human normal human evolution is not really very long, but a thousand years of eugenics and uh, GMO people. <laughs> yeah, well, a thousand years of a thousand years of deliberate evolution of a species. You uh, particularly when you can tweak genes and do what you just said the genetically modif genetic modifications. Um, that's a very short time, but it's still doable. Uh, I think it's long and, enough. A thousand years was long enough to be doable, and yeah. shorter than that wouldn't be credible. Yeah, and and the Morthans, uh, it's it's there's a metaphor for colonialism in there also. Is yes. that uh, so? Um, we're having a we're gonna. There's room in there to have a lot of fun with stories like Star Trek used to do, where you would do stories that make social commentary. Well. We are going to have some serious, subversive, seriously subversive social commentary in the series uh, because of what we have. Oh, good! It's not just Brick gets his ass kicked every week, huh? N uh, no, it's <laughs> it's we're you know Star Trek during the '60s was doing stories about the hippie movement and drugs and Vietnam and mm -hmm. and, and all kinds of relationships things, and racism. Some of the episodes were a little quaint, but they were ambitious in their goals about, let's say something about this. I think we can go beyond that now. I think we're, we'd be standing on the shoulders of a lot of television history to go beyond and, and really get nitty and gritty in, in, on this stuff. These so, things don't get done in a vacuum. 
who's working with you on this project? Who have you who have you gathered to your you, you've to mentioned your side? a few names already, but uh, well, like uh, David C. Fine is is uh, you can look his his credential up on the the Star Wolf website, thestarwolf.com will take you directly to the Kickstarter page. And he, he worked with Robert Wise on the uh, director's cut of Star Trek The Motion Picture. He's quite an interesting fellow. He's He really knows his stuff. He brought aboard uh, somebody who I have been wanting to work with a long time, Darren Doctorman, who is just one of the most fun people, but also one of the most knowledgeable special effects, visual effects guys in the world. Um, and uh, he did a lot of the... Uh, fun effects just in the Kickstarter presentation. Uh, we have Carl J. Martin, who is, him you're going to have to Google to see everything he's worked on because he is in such demand. Um, he's worked on everything, I think. And he designed our ships. Uh, actually, Mike Okuda designed the first iteration of the Star Wolf. Carl uh, did the CGI versions of the, uh, the Star Wolf. And gave us uh, some of the the Martin Carl J. Martin. He's been if you look him up on Google, you can see he's been a part of everything. Uh, he uh, Michael Kuda designed the first iteration of Star Wolf. Carl uh, J. Martin did our CGI work, and he did uh, he gave us these modular cargo ships as well, so he could take one set of modules and put them on the spine of a ship, put a different set of modules on and create a different ship. So he gave us a lot of ship designs. Um, Dorothy Fontana, of course, will be uh, a producer. Uh, she can decide on her title and what responsibilities she wants, but I won't do the show without her. And um, Danny Skotak, who has won uh, Oscars and has Oscar nominations for visual effects, will be our visual effects uh, director of photography. And is Mr. Mister Fontana. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, there's a couple other people who uh, don't have big names, but I've worked with them, and they are going to be brought aboard because I, they are so dependable. I know that having them aboard, we're going to get everything done. Um there's people who we want to bring aboard who we haven't approached yet or who, who haven't gotten back to us yet. But um, we've worked with them. We know they're good. And a couple Emmy winners, uh, another Oscar winner. Um, and, of course, we have at least one Hugo and Nebula winner aboard. Yes, well, so, present company included. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So... Uh, in terms of uh, uh, pedigree, uh, we have a very we have people who know their science, know their science fiction, and um, I think we got something special happening. I think you do too. I'm just uh, I'm I'm excited to see it. Have you I mean, got any is... of the actors picked out yet? Actually, we uh, I, I don't want to give away anything, but I don't want to give away anything. But right. uh, we are looking at. Uh, fresh faces for our leads. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people who I know who I would love to have aboard in one capacity or another. Uh, 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 I'd love to have Pat uh, Patricia Tallman playing the part of Cygnus Tor, our astrogator. Ooh, if she's, she'd mm -hmm. be good. And she's, I, I, I and just she's love available. If, if, uh, well, we sent her the scripts and we're waiting to see if she wants, if she, and she 
wants to work with us. So I, I don't think it's going to be too much of a stretch to get her aboard. There's a couple other people. Uh, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd have George Decay play Captain Lowell, uh, Lowell in the uh, pilot episode. Um, and uh, uh, there's... Um, there's a few other people who we'd really love to have aboard, but I, you know, until they say they're aboard, I can't really, uh, you know, all I'm doing right now is <laughs> talking about my wish list here. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we're in touch with some of these people, and they've responded favorably. So I think it's a question of you know, let's sit down and talk. What, what do we have to do to make this happen? So there's a there's a possibility, and uh, you know kind of the elephant in the room, but there's a possibility that you're not going to make the Kickstarter goal. Like, oh, yeah, we are. Yeah, that, that could We've happen. we got a week? Come on. We can do this thing. Um, <laughs> Dr. Demento got it, put over by a patron saint or two. This could happen. It could happen, yeah. Um, and uh, if we don't make the nut this time, we'll find another way and try again. We're not quitting. It's uh, This is just the first bite at the apple. Uh you know, this is, uh, it's a learning process. So we'll figure it out and we'll make it happen somehow. Uh, the important thing is that uh, we want to do it our way. We don't want to have to, you know, you funnel through the studios and, and uh, uh, this is all of a sudden you start finding out, well, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the other thing. And pretty soon you're not doing the show you set out to do, you're doing something else entirely. And uh, I've been there. And I don't want to go through that again. You don't have so, to. Yeah. I do detect the presence of a few absent friends in in the Star Wolf uh, universe. Uh, <clears throat> Mike Hodell as a uh, crew member. Uh, Mike Hodell is one of my favorite people in the world. He was the only person I ever met other than Spider Robinson who could out-pun me on the fly. Yow! And uh, he was... I only topped him once. And it was a very tasteless joke, but I only topped him once. Um, and I loved him. I just thought he was one of the best people in the world. And uh, I don't want him to be forgotten. So uh, he's there. And uh, who else were you referring to? Oh, let's see. There was an Admiral Wendane who was uh, the... Wendane Ackerman, Wendane yeah. Ackerman. And Harley, you know, Harley is one. Harley is a thousand by now. Good for you. Oh, him. Harley is... Harley... Harley's on the ship. Yeah, Harley's there, Yay, and uh, Harley. there there will be a few other in jokes and references for people to have some fun with as we go. So oh, I think it's sweet. Well, I think science fiction owes a debt to itself. I I don't think we want to pretend that uh, everything's in a vacuum. It's everything's connected to everything else. So who is Corey? Where where does the name Corey come from? Is that a, a tribute? Well, there's there's three tributes all in one. Uh, you go back to Space Patrol in 1950s, and yeah. the hero of that show was Commander Buzz Commander Corey. Commander Corey, the one he will promote. And and if you look at our guy's initials, JTK is the same as James Tiberius Kirk. Oh, that's true. So so right there, there's two. But his his name is John Thomas. At some point, we're thinking he'll meet Lady Jane, but uh, we haven't worked out that story. <laughs> well, he gets a romance too, doesn't it? So yeah, so we're we're you know I I can't say that every character's names are uh, um, are an in joke, but uh, we got conscious of some of the fun we could have with character names from time to time. 
Well, this is a project that just has to, it just has to happen. It's, it's, it's got so much in, um, so much, uh, what's the phrase Potential? I'm looking for? I was going to say just sheer inertia. You're just driving forward. It's Momentum. Like, Momentum. Momentum. Yeah. Mo- inertia is inertia is the tendency. Inertia to is in it place. sits there. Momentum is it moves. <laughs> and believe me, I really want this ship to move. <laughs> well, it, it, it's it, only going to happen if people go to the the Star Wolf Kickstarter page. It's it's uh, go to the starwolf.com and that'll take you to the Kickstarter page and pledge. You don't have to put the money down today. You only have to put the money down. On June 2nd, if we make the, the uh, nut, if we well, get... Well, I've done my part. And for the Thank listeners, you. that's thestarwolf.com, not just yeah. starwolf.com. Yeah. Starwolf.com yeah, the Star- goes nowhere. It's the Starwolf. Yeah. So and you go important. and you make a pledge, what you think you can afford, and on June 2nd, when we when we make our goal, we send Cheech and Guido to collect. <laughs> you don't have to send Cheech and Guido. I'll pay yeah, you. Actually, the rewards, just... the rewards are really neat. I mean, you know, they're all all the the swag that we're putting out is only for the launch crew. It's only the stuff that people who support it will get the official launch crew stuff. There uh, there there might be other stuff later on. Magnets, uh, DVDs of the pilots. Uh, Let's see. Uh, You're very, just looking at the low-rent district. Well, look at no, the high-rent district. Look at the high-rent awesome. district. The, because we realized our starship is unnamed. Other starships have earned their names. So if you want to name a starship after yourself or somebody you want to honor, that's a, a nice, expensive prize. But you can name Ooh, the you starship. you get all the boyfriend points that way. Woo! Yeah. And then, and then uh, my favorite uh, is... Uh, uh, have a character named after you, or, or even uh, have a cameo where you get to die a horrible, gory death. Yeah, and there's, we're already uh, there's three uh, 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 three thousand dollars gets you a cameo in the show. Yeah, and, you can't uh, be a member of SAG though, because that would violate guild rules because it would be selling a job. But right. if you're just an amateur you can buy a cameo also that's the difference because there have yeah. been other uh kickstarter campaigns where they've sold positions uh or where they have uh, uh awarded uh positions on the on the cast yeah to but, you can't be a SAG but you can't be a we, sag actor we can't violate california state law so we're no not gonna darn. yeah but if you're you know if you really want to have buy a part you know, buy yourself a cameo. We'll Good we'll do our best to make sure that you get your camera time and get sucked out an airlock or your head bitten off by a Morthan or something really fun. Mm. Yeah, that's the ten thousand dollar pledge. You yeah, can, you can die in space for ten thousand dollars. For that kind of money, I want regular bloodworms. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to wait till we do that episode, but oh, okay. yeah. I told you I read the books. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fun thing, I got to share this, is I sit and I, uh, with Carl Martin or with Dorothy Fontana or with uh, Daniel Keyes Moran. We we're going to, he's going to do one of our scripts. Um, we have a wonderful story by him. And we start just brainstorming. You could do this, or why don't we do this, or what would this be in the world? Or uh, Dan came up with this very interesting perception of how the Morthans think. And to me, that's the exciting thing, is that we're building this whole universe. A lot of stuff will never make it into a script somewhere, 
but we now know what's in the, the nook and crannies here and there and everywhere so that we know what's consistent with what we do see. The brainstorming with really intelligent people, people who really know their science and their science fiction, to me, that's the most exciting part of this. Brings the whole world alive so that yeah. you, you're comfortable functioning in it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then writing in yeah, it or acting in it or whatever else you need to do. It makes it easier in the long run because somebody says to you, we've got this uh, scene and, and how do we play this? Would, would Corey do this or would Brick say that or would, you know, say, oh, well, I know who Brick is. Brick wouldn't say that or Corey would respond this way because we w we've had so much time to develop the backstory and the characters in the universe they live in that we don't have to make it up as we go. We actually have a clear sense of the context they're operating in. And so it's it's easier to make consistent decisions so that you, there will be this grand vision of the whole show. There's a story arc. We know where we're going. We aren't going to be five seasons down wondering, gee, what do we do next? How do we tie it all together? No, we know what happens. We have the story arc. So and it's big. So you've thought about how the distribution is going to work. Uh, those are, I, I'm not going to go into the details on that because that's, there are possibilities that we're still exploring. Definitely there will be an internet access. Uh, we're also looking at possibilities of Amazon or uh, getting picked up by a cable channel or a satellite network. We're just, it, first of all, we have to prove we can do the show. Yeah. Well, and, and the great thing about doing it on the internet as contrasted to doing it on broadcast television is you don't have to be strapped in for uh, strapped in for 13 episodes just to do one to see right. if it's going to work. Yeah. The if other thing do six is... Six episodes, you can do it. If you want to do 30 episodes, you can do it. The other thing is, is that we get to interact with our fan base much more um, interactively. Well, that was a great sentence. But we get to have a, a better relationship with our with the with our audience, and so that we can say to our audience, "What do you like here?" You know, or or even vote on this thing or that thing. We we actually want to have a lot of input from the fans uh, because we think that adds an element of action and surprise to the show. Um, and it's not all just coming from one person or one team of people. Uh, it allows us to say, you know, what do you think? And uh, I, I'm excited about that opportunity. I'm not sure how it's going to work. We don't, we're still inventing a lot of this. It's, but we're looking at once we get out of the studio system, what can we do that the studios can't? Is television dead? Do you think the old production model is dead? <laughs> well, yeah, let me say it to you this way. Uh, there's these dinosaurs, and they lay one egg that costs $185 million every year. And if that egg doesn't hatch, you know, their reproductive destiny takes a big hit. And when you breed at that rate, your evolutionary advantage is reduced. <laughs> now, it's not dead, but it's not, it. it's not now, dead, but it's not Now, over here, so well. you have these little egg-sucking therapsids that go through, you know, these mammaloid little creatures that produce a litter of four every three months. And so they're going through 
a dozen generations in the time that the dinosaurs are doing one generation. Well, your little therapsids are evolving uh, 12 times as fast as your dinosaurs. Now, where, who has the evolutionary advantage? It's the mammals. And uh, I think that's uh, particularly if they're egg suckers because, like, oh, look, a nest of eggs. <laughs> um, I think the studios will, be, will still be with us because they have a distribution system. Uh, they can afford to produce these summer blockbusters, which we all love the blockbusters. I mean, who didn't love The Dark Knight Rises? Um, you, you know, and, and the original Star Wars trilogy and, and uh, the Avengers. So, uh, and I'm looking forward to the Lone Ranger this year. That's my yes, picture too. this me year. <laughs> so, so I, I think there's always going to be a place for the big blockbusters, but I think that the internet will provide an opportunity for uh, dramatic series and comedy series that will go places that the broadcast networks can't. So I, that's where the excitement is. I think that broadcast television and even cable networks are going to take something of a hit until they learn how to form partnerships with the independent producers on the Internet. And I think that's where we're headed to, is that the independents on the Internet are going to take over the, uh, a large part of the, the production environment and that those who want to sell advertisements on the cable and satellite channels will end up supporting a lot of the independents on the on the internet. I certainly hope that's how it'll happen. Um, I could be wrong. It could blow up in a whole other way, but I definitely think that internet production is, uh, I, is it's the, I, I wouldn't call it the elephant in the room, it's the lemur in the room, but it's, it's lemurs breed faster than elephants. <laughs> well, David Gerald, it's been a great pleasure and an honor having you on the show this evening and uh, I want to remind the listeners it's thestarwolf.com go pledge throw money at the screen this will happen yeah throw a lot of money at the screen push, push us over the top buy a gory death name a starship uh, uh, be be part of our launch crew and and we're you know we're going to be so grateful to everybody who cooperates, you'll you'll see we're going to do everything we can to help everybody who pledges be a, intimately involved in the show as much as we can. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we will do our best to get the word out ourselves and try and get our fan base uh, behind your project as well. Thank you, thank you, and we will we will say thank you by delivering the very best television show that we can make. We're we looking, look forward to it. We're looking forward to seeing it. Thank you. Okay. So who wants to push the button? It's your turn to push the button. It's my turn to push yes. the button? All right. Well. I'll push the button. You have been listening to episode 14 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for May 28th, 2013. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Our guest this evening has been science fiction writer and screenwriter David Gerald. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio General Manager Gene Turnbow and Executive Producer Susan Fox. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by Christopher B. McGuire. 
The Navigator was played by Christine Cherry, and the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. If you have a company and you would like to be an Event Horizon sponsor, now is your chance. Email us at kryptonradio at kryptonradio.com for details. Stay tuned for tonight's episode of X-Minus One.